Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome. Welcome, one and all, my friends. Welcome to the Late Show. I, I am your host, Stephen Colbert. Now, although for a little while there, I almost wasn't, I will regale you with the heartwarming tale of my exploding appendix, but I will, I'll, do that, I'll do that a little later in the show. I know no one wants to hear too much about a hunk of dead intestine filled with poison and bile. But unfortunately, Donald Trump is in the news. Recently, people have been warning about Trump being a wannabe dictator, cause he wanna be. His, his re-election campaign from the beginning has been all about retribution, and last week, Sean Hannity asked him point blank if he planned to abuse the office of president to punish his enemies, Trump reassured America his fascism will be available for a limited time only. I want to go back to, to this one issue, though, because the media has been focused on this and attacking you yeah. under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except Look, for? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border, and I want to drill, that's drill, not a, that's, drill. That's not, no, no. that's not retribution. I got I'm going to be, I'm going to be, you know, he keeps, <laughs> we love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Only, only a dictator on day one, okay? <laughs> only day one. First decree, first decree, build the wall. Second decree, drill, drill, drill. Third decree, Every day is day one. <laughs> okay, every day over here, goes back over here. Just three. It's like Groundhog Day. Andy McDowell, legally, you now love me. <laughs> now, obviously, we know he's kind of trolling here. We also know he's telling us exactly what he plans to do. And if he gets unlimited power, he won't be giving it up. People don't go, and that's the last time I'll be trying crack. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it was delicious, but I doubt I'll ever... <laughs> One convincing case that Trump plans to be a dictator comes from a recent Washington Post op-ed by editor-at-large and warm-rising bread dough, Robert Kagan. <laughs> Kagan warned that America has headed the way of the Roman Republic, writing, indicting Trump for trying to overthrow the government will prove akin to indicting Caesar for crossing the Rubicon and just as effective, yes. Trump is just like Caesar, except that history will never associate him with salad. <laughs> now, not all Caesar salad jokes. Dallas. Part of Dallas diet. It's croutons. Not all Republicans are on board uh, with Trump's uh, one-day dictator idea. Yesterday, Mitt Romney offered this homespun analogy. 
You know, when I was a uh, kid, there was something called a gumball machine. You could put a penny in and a gumball would come out. It was automatic. There was no filter. Put in the penny, out came the gumball. Donald Trump is kind of a human gumball machine, which is a thought or a notion comes in and it comes out of his mouth. What are you talking about? Trump is not a gumball machine. Gumball machines give you the same thing every time. A gumball. With Trump, you put in a penny one time, it's a gumball. The next time, it's a meatball. Sometimes it's Kevin McCarthy's balls. You never know. I don't know. We also got a stark warning from former future President Al Gore. Well, I saw the other day where he pledged to be a dictator on day one, and you kind of wonder uh, what it'll take for people to uh, believe him when he tells us uh, who he is. And, uh, you know, the, the solution to political uh, despair is political action. Oh, good. Because if there's one thing I know, it's that when Al Gore warns us about something, <laughs> we take action in plenty of time. Just ask the Late Show's emergency preparation correspondent, Gary the Glacier. Gary? I don't know where Gary is. It's like, apparently, Gary must have stepped away for a minute. I'm sure he'll be back. On Saturday, Trump doubled down on his dictator remarks during a speech at the New York Young Republicans Club annual gala, where, of course, the theme was angry virgins under the sea. <laughs> that, that was just the amuse-bouche of the douche. Because Trump went on to say all sorts of crazy stuff, like this story about one man's reaction to Trump's handling of the Access Hollywood tape where he brags about sexual assault. And a general who's a fantastic general actually said to me, sir, I've been on the battlefield. Men have gone down on my left and on my right. I stood on hills where soldiers were killed. But I believe the bravest thing I've ever seen was the night you went onto that stage with Hillary Clinton after what happened. And then that woman asked you the first question about it. And I said, Locker room talk. It's locker room talk. Yes. It was such an act of true bravery for Donald Trump to brush off his confession of sexual assault. And you can see it all in the gripping war drama, Grabbing Ryan's Privates. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he enjoyed lying some more, this time about one of his lawyers. And another person who's a warrior, she happens to be a beautiful woman, but I never think about that because I never talk about beauty. To me, I can see the most beautiful woman in the world. It doesn't register with me at all. Beauty doesn't matter. Yes. <laughs> How women look is not important to Trump at all. Never has been. In fact, for years, he owned a beauty doesn't matter contest. <laughs> Trump also... Trump also bragged about pretty women. Trump also bragged about pardoning former New York Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick with a very specific turn of phrase. You know, I pardoned Bernie, and he was very emotional when I did it, right? And now Bernie is cleaner. This is the expression they say, I never quite understood it, than a newborn baby's ass. Did you ever hear that? No. No. No one's ever heard that. 
Trump said a lot of stupid things, and sometimes you don't want to updraft them, but sometimes you have to take a stand. <laughs> Newborn babies' asses are not clean. <laughs> because, and we're all adults here, poop. <laughs> that proves he's had five children and has never changed a diaper. <laughs> Of course, my guest tonight is one of the leading experts on the dictatorial aspirations of old Tater Dick. Later on, I'll be talking to former Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Former, former Representative Cheney. She's got that new book. She's got a new book out called Oath and Honor, A Memoir and a Warning. It is sold out on Amazon already, making it the most successful memoir slash warning since Britney's The Woman in Me is about to do some weird stuff with knives on Instagram. <laughs> Cheney's been warning that the GOP will never stand up to Trump's dictatorial instincts. She recounts that when House Republicans gather on January 6th and members were pressured to sign on to objections to the vote count, as one congressman signed his name, he said out loud, the things we do for Orange Jesus. <laughs> Orange Jesus... Have some respect, sir. His name is Gritty. <laughs> also, oh, no. we took a drive down 95 to Philly for that joke. Also, Orange Jesus sounds like the smoothie place you'd find in a very religious food court. <laughs> right next to Original Cinnabon. <laughs> now, how long are we away? Almost three, almost three, almost three weeks we've been away. While we were away, the Republican Party lost one very horrible person because George Santos was expelled from Congress. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of sad to see George go, too. I'm really... I'm really going to miss those guys. Of course, this leaves a vacant seat in New York's 3rd District, and some candidates have already been floated, like Democrat Tom Suozzi, Republican Jack Martins, and Christoph Mysterio, Swiss heir to the Toblerone chocolate fortune. Mm, oh, Christoph. Don't worry about his future, because George Santos has already joined the Cameo app. On the app, he lists himself as former congressional icon. Pretty positive way to describe being expelled for fraud. It's like Hannibal Lecter calling himself OG Meat King Slay. We got a great show for you tonight. More Late Show Pod Show after this. Hello, my friends. Nice to see you. Nice to see you guys. I've missed being out here with y'all. Oh, um, in just a few minutes, uh, as people out there here already know, Liz Cheney is going to be over here to talk about her new book. Oath and honor. Uh, but before I get into that, um, I just, uh, it is so lovely to see all of you. The last time I was sitting at this desk, which was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, yeah. uh, I, I was in a heap of trouble. Yep. Yep. I was not aware of the amount of trouble I was in. Did you notice anything going on with me that night? I mean, I knew something was wrong when, for the first time in almost nine years, you had to rehearse the monologue sitting at the desk with a barf bucket next to you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I had forgotten that detail until you reminded me. Yes. That's never a good sign. Not a good um, sign, man. So here's, 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 uh, here's kind of uh, briefly what happened. Last, uh, as, as, as I mentioned before, uh, last time I was doing The Late Show, uh, almost three weeks ago, I had to get an emergency surgery 
for a ruptured appendix. And um, here's what happened. We'd had a really great show the night before with David Letterman. We had a wonderful time with Dave. What a joy to have him here. Um, I was feeling high. But then I got home, and I was not feeling great. And I, I didn't know what was going on. I thought I might have caught something from Dave's beard. And I <laughs> and, uh, woke up uh, the next morning just in abdominal agony. And I figured the pain would go away. You know, it would, just sort of, it would pass. So I decided to do the show that night. How bad could it be? Turns out, extremely bad. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know, and I have this, a friend of mine, Maris Gardino, sent this to me. This is, uh, this is what a healthy appendix looks like, right there. That's it. That, that thing right there is the appendix, OK? But by uh, taping time that day, my appendix looked uh, like this. <laughs> now, I, I didn't know it was my appendix, and I didn't know that it had burst, yeah. even though the pain uh, just got off the charts by the time I made it to stage that night. Uh, I did the show. I did two shows. It was a two-show night, because yep. we did two show nights so people could have an extra day off for the holidays. Mm -hmm. And uh, because we'd already been out for five months uh, during the strike, and I'd already missed a week for COVID, and most importantly, because I am an idiot, I said, <laughs> let's just do the show. <laughs> um, but it also, you know, proves that I'm kind of brave. <laughs> Uh, the pain was manageable. It only hurt when I moved <laughs> and when I didn't. <laughs> and I held it together for two monologues and two second acts and then a long interview with Bradley Cooper because there is no pain when you're lost in those baby blues. <laughs> but here's the thing. The moment I was not prepared for, and I want to start off by saying I love this man, was the cooking segment I did with Jose Andres. Because yeah. at the end of it, he spontaneously grabbed me to dance with him afterwards. Now, keep in mind, I, I don't want to get too technical here, I was dying. <laughs> also, to be completely clear, I didn't, I didn't tell Bradley, I didn't tell Jose, no one had any idea. Jose did have, had no idea how I was feeling. There was no way he could have known it, that at that point, my insides had become what the Spanish call paella. <laughs> so, we, we finished the show. I've got a raging fever. I'm shaking like a Polaroid picture with the DTs. I get in the car, and my driver, Pablo, who I've known and worked with for 15 years, said, Mr. Colbert, I really think I should take you to the hospital. And I said, no, I just need to go to sleep. I just need to go home. And then Evie calls me. She says, Stephen, I really think Pablo should take you to the hospital, and I'll meet you there. And I said, no, honey, I just, I just need to go to sleep. I just, I, just, I, just, I just need you to go home. Five minutes later, Evie calls me back and says, um, Pablo's going to take you to the hospital. I'm going to meet you there. And I said, that's a really good idea. That's a really, really good thing. True? So we get to the hospital. They scanned me. It turns out my appendix had already burst. Uh, they said when they opened me up, it was like they'd shot John Wick 5 down there. <laughs> they got to take out the appendix, and they got to clean everything out. And I don't want to go into too much detail here, but basically they go in there with a power washer and a shop vac. Just... <laughs> so my appendix burst. Um, here, here's the thing. This, thing. this thing burst. They don't know why appendix go bad. 
because they don't know why they go good. <laughs> they have no idea what it does. All they know is at some point, it just turns around to the pancreas and says, I bet I could kill this guy. <laughs> so, bet you five bucks. Bet you five bucks I could kill this guy. So they yank it out, uh, and I've been at home recovering ever since. Um, and quick note, I am not here to condone the use of morphine. <laughs> I'm just asking if anyone brought some tonight. <laughs> they actually, they gave me morphine, and then they gave me Dilaudid. They gave me Dilaudid, and I was like, wait, that's what Samuel Coleridge was on. And then I started saying, you can, in the, in the actual room, I'm going, in Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. <laughs> Where Alpha's sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. And Evie's like, he's not hallucinating. He's always like that. <laughs> True story. Uh, uh, anyway, it's been quite a journey. I want to thank the doctors and nurses at St. Barnabas Hospital who took such care of me. Dr. Troutman, Dr. Shaker, Dr. Sirocco. And, of course, I want to thank everybody who reached out with well wishes, the world leaders, the presidents, the potentates, the stars of stage and screen, the musicians, the authors, the scientists. There are too many to name. You know who you are, and I'll never forget it. And to everyone who did not reach out, I know who you are, and I'll never forget it. And I want to thank the people on this show. I want to thank the people on this show who truly went beyond the call of duty to get me through that taping and, and, and propping me up. My stage manager right here, Mark McKenna, literally stood between me and the audience so I could weep into my script during commercial breaks. I want to thank Evie and the kids who have been amazing during my, my recovery, and they have filled... You have. been amazing. Filled the hole where my appendix used to be with love. And you might be surprised that at the end here, I'd like to thank my appendix. Because you giving me blood poisoning helped me lose 14 pounds. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Appendicitis is the new Ozempic. <laughs> we'll be right back with Liz Cheney. My guest tonight is a former congresswoman from Wyoming who was the third most powerful Republican in the House and served on the January 6th committee. Her new book is Oath and Honor. Please welcome former congresswoman Liz Cheney. Welcome to the show. Let's get straight to the heat and meat. There's the book, Oath and Honor. I look, I look forward to talking to so many things that are in it and some of the implications of what you say here. But first, I love the story that when Nancy Pelosi wanted to appoint you to the January 6th committee, her aides went to her with a pile of things negative that you'd said about Nancy Pelosi. And her reaction was, why are you showing me these things that aren't important? Right. There's something more important, which is the Constitution and democracy and the rule of law and that kind of thing. In the spirit of that, I, I want to point out that over the years, I have made a few piquant jokes about you and your father. <laughs> I don't yes, know if you're yes. aware, but I uh, don't expect you to watch the show. No, I'm aware, and you're not getting off as easy as I did. But... <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> um, I, I didn't expect to ever interview you, really. Yeah. Um, you, you voted to impeach your own party's president. 
You were uh, high in the leadership of the Republican Party in Congress. Um, now you've been embraced by Democrats for really a courageous stand for what you believe the rule of law and preserving the Constitution and our democracy in the face of an existential threat. And I'm curious, what is this moment like for you to be embraced by the people who vilified you and your family really for so long? Well, I don't think about it that way. Um, and, uh, you know, look, I think it's weird. Um, certainly. It feels a little weird to me, too. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That, it's going around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I'm sorry, but I am recovering still from hearing about your appendix. So I just <laughs> want to say welcome back. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> me, too. Yeah, me, no, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, no, look, I think that it's, it's just a symptom and a, and a symbol of how serious this moment is. That, you know, you and I would be sitting here, uh, that I would have taken a spot on the select committee, you know, appointed by Nancy Pelosi. Um, it tells you that there are some things that matter much, much more than politics. And uh, Constitution is one of those. Well, the January 6th committee un- 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 uncovered a lot of events that led to the insurrection. But you write in, in your book that you-, you noticed those red flags while they were happening. What were some of the reddest of those flags? And what did you do in response? Yeah, um, I talk about the fact that after the election, uh, there were signs. You know, I would sort of see these signs of of parts of Donald Trump's efforts. Of course, at the time, I didn't know the whole picture. Um, But, you know, for example, as we got in the days past the election, when um, it was clear that they didn't have the evidence to back up the claims that they were making. And so I, you know, put out a statement in mid-November saying you know, put up or shut up. If you don't have evidence to back up these claims, uh, then you need to respect the outcome of the election. You know, we need to move forward here. We also had signs that he had planning underway at the Pentagon uh, that was very concerning. When he fired the Secretary of Defense after the election, um, in the weeks after that, you had people suggesting, Mike Flynn suggesting that Trump should uh, deploy the military to seize ballot boxes, seize voting machines, rerun the election. Um, and, and at the so, same time, not just getting rid of the Secretary of Defense, but also installing some cronies at right, high level over the Pentagon right, at the exactly, same time. Exactly. It really did seem like Lang. And now Mike Flynn is someone that he might possibly put back into office or put back into service if right. he were elected again. And I think that's a really important thing for people to remember. You know, you've had a lot of people uh, suggest, well, don't worry, you know, uh, our institutions can hold, our institutions can stand no matter what Donald Trump might do. Um, and, and that's wrong. Uh, you know, we, we saw on January 6th that he was willing to attempt to seize power. He was willing to attempt to stay in office even though he'd lost the election, didn't, didn't tell the mob to leave for over three hours while he watched it on television. And so even the idea... after he knew someone had been shot. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that was so striking in the select committee's work, that um, he was handed a note saying that there had been a civilian who'd been shot at the entrance to the House chamber. And we had a White House uh, witness who testified that they saw that note sitting on the table in front of him in his dining room as he watched the violent uh, attack on television. I mean, that's that level of depravity is not something that we can we can simply ignore and walk away from. One of the things that um, one of the things at the heart of challenging the, this election was, of course, the, the the fake electors scheme. Yeah. When did you first hear about this, and 
What was your reaction when you found out that they were ginning up a, a bunch of yahoos just to say that they were electors and come to Washington to try to confuse everybody? Yeah, I mean, we started to see news reports that that they, you know, were having these these electors, these Trump electors, these fake electors meet. But I didn't understand what they were going to do with those fake electors um, until a phone call on January 4th. And I had been on an email list, which apparently they forgot to take me off of. Um, Reply all gets a lot of people in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially if you're planning a coup. Um, so, uh, so, uh, I got the invite for this phone call, uh, to plan, to talk about what people were supposed to say to defend what they were going to do on January 6th, and I got on the call, um, and that was the first time I understood, uh, that these fake electors were going to be used. People on the call said, well, Mike Pence, the vice president, is going to basically say, I don't have to count the real electors because I have, you know, too many electors here. I have, There's you know, a controversy. multiple, we just don't know. So it would give him an excuse not to count. And, and that was terrifying. Uh, I, I got off the call and I ran into the Capitol, into the office of the House parliamentarian, who's the guy that knows all the rules for the House. And I said, what do we do? You know, if the vice president stands in the well of the house or stands at the podium and says, I'm not going to count electoral votes, what do we do in the joint session? And the answer was basically all you can do is make a motion to adjourn. There, there's no real way to stop him. Because but in a rules... way, that kind of plays into the chaos that they wanted to generate to create the illusion of confusion. Exactly. Exactly. Well, they, they you know, Donald Trump was clearly engaged in an illegal and unconstitutional effort to stop the counting of electoral votes so that he could stay in office. So what's, what stopped that moment from that, that moment of crisis from reaching ahead? Was it the fact that Pence wouldn't do it, or was it the actual attack that actually sort of interrupted the plan? Well, I think that the attack itself was serving the purpose of stopping the electoral count. But Pence, I learned later, and his lawyer were at the same time that I was having this discovery and talking to the House and Senate parliamentarians Pence was doing the same thing, um, and he had made clear that he was not going to refuse to count the votes. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Liz Cheney, everybody. Stick around. Now, there's a lot in this book about a guy named uh, Mike Johnson. And Michael Johnson, at the time you were writing this, was a, a, a little-known minor functionary in, in congressional leadership. Wasn't a big power player there. A short, a, a, hadn't been a congressman very long from Louisiana. Why did you devote so much time to, to this guy? Who now, of course, I mean, as, as uh, luck or unluck would have it, is second in line to the presidency. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, um, when I was writing the book, I thought, you know, maybe I'm spending too much time talking about Mike Johnson because, you know, who cares about Mike Johnson? Right. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sadly, we all now have to care about Mike Johnson. Um, but uh, his behavior was so striking to me because he was somebody I thought I knew well. We were elected the same year. I thought he was an honorable man. Uh, an honest man, but 
but it turned out throughout this period that he was willing to do things he knew were wrong uh, in order to placate Donald Trump and, you know, convince members of the House of Representatives that they ought to sign on to this amicus brief that was unconstitutional. Um, this is the Texas amicus brief that was sent. The Supreme Court just laughed it out of court. Immediately said, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, they refused to hear their case. But um, the, you know, I think Mike's activities were so uh, damaging because he was able to convince so many Republicans to go along with him. Now, I'm not, you know, Republican members all have to take responsibility for their own actions. Right. But, you know, when I sat on the floor of the House on January 6th, and Mike Johnson stood up and he started objecting to the electoral votes from Arizona. I thought, you know what? In all these weeks, he hasn't once mentioned a concern about Arizona. He said he doesn't think we should count the electors from four other states, but he never mentioned Arizona. But yet he was standing there saying he was convinced that we should throw these votes out. And so I he thought, was doing some improv. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, improv because Arizona starts with an A. And he got, you know, an earlier opportunity to be part of the debate on the floor. How, so if he's, he's now a leader, but at the time he wasn't a major figure and he was the one circulating these, these letters to be part of the amicus brief, is he, how unique is he? You say that he knew it wasn't true, he knew these things had already been thrown out of court, but he was still gonna pursue them anyway. What percentage of the people, of your former colleagues in the Republican Party who support the idea of the, for lack of a better word, big lie, what percentage of them do you think actually believe it? I mean, like, Point one. I mean, it, it, in terms of elected officials... Even though, even though I don't even know the number, but it's a vast majority of them say they believe it. Yeah, yeah. Elected Republicans, you know, maybe five, like not very many, actually believe what Trump is saying, actually believe... And do they not have any idea of what the damage that does to our nation and to our democracy to promulgate that lie? Or do they just not care? Both, both. I mean, is there I, anything I think more cynical than you can think of politically weaker or more cynical than that than to lie to the American people for your own political power and destroy the thing that you want to be part of? It, it, is, it has been... Um, the way to think about it is America's adversaries would love nothing more than to convince us that our democracy doesn't work. And right now you have Donald Trump and the Republicans who support him doing the work of our adversaries. And, and it is, it is a, it's a really dangerous thing we're seeing. And it's especially dangerous because the president of the United States is responsible for enforcing the laws. He's responsible for ensuring that the laws are faithfully executed. Just a little side note about the Colorado case, <laughs> yeah. about like, you know, the, using the 14th Amendment to keep him off the Colorado ballot. And the judge there said, yes, he did engage in insurrection, but... The law specifically says in the 14th Amendment, those who have taken an oath to support the Constitution who then engage in insurrection can't run for office again. But they say the president actually says to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution and doesn't say support. From your point of view, can you preserve, protect, and defend without supporting something? No. <laughs> I think that it's very hard to argue that the presidency is not an office of the United States. And that's essentially what that rule means. Okay. You write that defeating Trump is the cause of our time. Yeah. And certainly for our nation, I would agree with you. So what happens after a book tour? Like, it's a very successful book. You make a good case uh, to the public through this show and, and other, uh, other media. What 
what is next? What else can people do other than vote? What can people do to prevent this person from becoming a dictator, as you say we're possibly sleepwalking our way toward? I think that that this moment requires every one of us, um, you know, Republicans, Democrats, independents, people who've been on different sides of big issues of our time to realize if we don't come together to stop him, we'll never have the chance to debate those other issues again. This is a moment that has to be uh, a unifying moment where people say, yeah, look, I'm going to put aside the fact that I might disagree on X, Y, or Z. There are more of us who understand that this nation has to be a nation with a peaceful transfer of power, that we have to be a nation where our kids get to grow up in freedom. More of us who know that and who are willing to, to stand for it and to fight for it than those who are supporting Donald Trump. But we've got to be willing to do the hard work to stand against him and make sure that that he does not ever again get anywhere close to the Oval Office. Could you remind the people? <laughs> Could you remind the people what 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 Mike Flynn said when you asked him if he believed that America should have a peaceful transfer of power? Uh, he pled the fifth. Yeah, it, and it's a stunning thing. I mean, this is somebody who, you know, served his nation. Uh, in uniform, um, but was unwilling. He pled the fifth when I asked him that. He pled the fifth when I asked him whether or not the attack on the Capitol was justified. He pled the fifth. Um, He also said Donald Trump should deploy the military to seize voting machines and rerun an election. And Donald Trump says that Mike Flynn is going to be in his administration if he's elected again. Not a fan of that. Yeah. I just want to put that out. I just want to put that out there. I want to give you some reaction to that, other than (laughs) just bone chilling terror at the same time. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Liz Cheney, everybody. The guest is Liz Cheney. Um, so as I, as I said before, I've made a few pecan jokes about you and your dad over the years. And I think it is important that even people who disagree about a lot of things have to understand that if we're going to have the ability to have these disagreements, as you said, we have to have a country that has a democracy that is not a fascist dictatorship. And what is it, pecan? I don't know what that means. Pecant, like a oh, pe- sharp... Oh. Uh, it's a know. very elitist word. Yes, yes. well... <laughs> I, uh, well, I, it's, it's not Colbert, it's Colbert. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I do want to ask one thing, though, and I don't, I don't mean this as a partisan question, but I mean it as a, a real curiosity. Um, there are left-wing dictators, yeah. and there are right-wing dictators. Yeah. There, are, there are communist and socialist dictators who go to any means and any amount of people have to die or be trampled in order to achieve whatever freedom for the proletariat. And then there are fascist dictators, right-wing dictators, who, in the name of preserving some imagined status quo or some imagined past that needs to be returned to, will go to any lengths, and anyone needs to be trampled or or killed in order to achieve that. So I'm not saying that it it is the purview of one party. Why do you think, though, for the first time in our nation's history, the Republican Party won that race and got the first fascist dictator who could possibly take office? 
I'm just curious if you've done any self-examination of your party's leadership over the last 20 years as to why he is not an aberration, but rather an avatar. I, I think he's an aberration. Um, I think Really? That, yeah. I mean, I, look, I think what Donald Trump has done is, first of all, he, he tapped into a sense among a lot of people in this country that their voice isn't heard. Um, but he then lied to them, and he preyed on their patriotism, and he told them, you know what, I'll speak for you. Um, but very specifically through things like racism, like Mexicans yeah. are rapists, they're killers, they're here to get us. Like, no, that's, look, that's mean, a very I, racist ideology. Absolutely. And, and Undermining one of the, things, of the media. One that's, of, a very, that's a very fascist thing look, to do. Look, there's no question that he's using a fascist playbook. Right. Um, but... It's also true right now, if you want to talk about, you know, uh, for example, the, the disgusting anti-Semitism that is on the rise across this country, the left has a huge problem with anti-Semitism. And what we're seeing on our university campuses, for example, and, and the unwillingness to stand against it. So I would agree yes. that anti-Semitism is a disease that runs across all cultural boundaries, not only in the United States, but across the world. Right. What, what, I, what, I, what I mean by, say, undermining the media is no, I'm, I'm, un, un, right. under, undercutting, sort of like roughing up the referee was a project of the right for the last 20 years, or undermining yeah, public institutions. You, you, no. you say that people believe that our public institutions can take the punishment that Trump will give them, and that's why he's not as dangerous as he should be, but I mean, the Republican Party's mantra has been the government is the problem for so many years. Yeah, but see, this is it's really important... Um, in my view, that we not sort of slide into saying everything the Republicans have ever done, you know, uh, is somehow the same as what Donald Trump is doing. I'm not saying everything. I'm and, saying and it, it is, not, those are breadcrumbs. Yeah, but I, I think you and I are just not going to agree on that. I mean, I think it's... I, I think, know we're not going to agree, but do you but understand I, why I'm asking that question? Yeah, but I think you should let me answer it. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, no, I, look, I think that... Um, when I stood in front of my colleagues, for example, when they kicked me out of leadership, um, I said to them, you know, we cannot become the party of anti-Semitism and white supremacy and racism and bigotry. And if you look at the people uh, and the symbolism that the people had who invaded the Capitol on January 6th, they had neo-Nazi insignia. The Confederate flag flew for the first time inside the Capitol on that day. And, and the Republican Party... Maybe what we should say is we can debate about how we got to this point. I think the Republican Party has people who, who have been in the party have a particular duty to stand against where we are today. Um, and I also think we all have to recognize he's using a fascist playbook. I mean, I'm, I don't disagree with what you're saying. He's taking the same steps that we have seen people all around the world take in the past. And um, the, the, the challenge for us as Americans is not to say to ourselves, well, that can never happen here. The people who are claiming that he is, you know, going to uh, unravel the Constitution if he's elected again are catastrophizing. We can't, we can't go down that path. We have to understand this is a very real threat. And there'll be a lot of time for us to debate how we got to this place. Um, but right now, we have to stand together as Americans to stop him. That's the most important thing. I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think, I completely agree. And I think that's one of the reasons why you are perceived with such courage by even the people who don't agree with what the policies you voted for over the years, the fact that you voted for the, with the president 90% of the time. But now when it counts, 
for the future of our country and the possibility of us having a free and open and small L liberal society that you're doing the right thing. So I'm, I'm not saying that the Republican Party is somehow this irredeemable it uh, creature. It might be. It actually. might, it might yeah. be. What I'm saying, the reason I'm asking is that maybe, okay, maybe now is not the time to ask the question, but I think there will have to be a time to ask the question, why did, because the Democrats or the liberals have every opportunity to have their own demagogue, why did you guys get there first was all I was asked. Yeah, well, I mean, look, um, certainly I wish that this weren't the case. There's, yeah. there's no question. Uh, but, but I also think it's, it's, it's really important that we not get into a situation where we act as though or think or talk about, suggest that Donald Trump uh, and the threat that he poses is anything other than existential and unique in our history. Um, because it, it certainly is. Well, Ms. Cheney, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. The book, Oath and Honor, is available now. Congresswoman Liz Cheney, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing. If you want to see more of me, come to The Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives. 